0: If you want to go ahead and turn to the text we're looking at today, you can. It's First John five, verses six through twelve. First John five, six through twelve. Several years ago, while uh, my family and I were living in Benton County, Arkansas, I received a summons to jury duty. Not, I don't think anyone's favorite thing, jury duty. Despite my best attempts to not get selected, when you know you're sitting there and they're asking you questions. Um, I was chosen for a trial, to be on the jury for a trial that lasted about three days. The trial was a civil trial, not a criminal one, where a woman had been in an accident, in a car accident, and she was suing her insurance company for a large sum of money, claiming that she was much more severely injured than her insurance company was willing to recognize or even, of course, pay for. She claimed to have incurred a debilitating, life-changing neck injury. And for two days, we heard witnesses and experts representing both her and the insurance company. Now, if I recall correctly, the woman's lawyers called three witnesses the woman herself, who explained everything that happened to her and how the accident happened, a chiropractor, and an eyewitness to the traffic accident itself. Now, after hearing all the testimony, we, the jury, were commissioned to reach a verdict. And as it turns out I was voted foreman of the jury and as we considered all the testimony from both sides we found the testimony of the three witnesses that were brought on the woman's side to lack credibility. Number one the woman herself had inconsistencies in her story and her body language. Her own movements told us that she wasn't quite as debilitated as she was making it out to be. Matter of fact we were only supposed to consider what was actually said from the, the witness, you know, whatever evidence was brought. But when we'd be dismissed for a break or whatever, for a recess, we'd look over. And that lady, would she would begin to laugh and talk and turn her head and talk to people behind her. And I was like, wait a second here. She's just kind of putting on a show. So we found her to be not very credible herself. Secondly, the chiropractor, this guy was just wacky. I mean, uh, he didn't seem to know much about the accident. And his science was very questionable. Uh, then there was the eyewitness to the accident. It turns out this eyewitness actually didn't see the whole accident, just saw part of the accident at the very end. And therefore, we, and, and also her story didn't quite match up with everything that the woman was saying. So basically we, fa- we found that the three witnesses lacked credibility and we judged in favor of the insurance company. We didn't find the testimony of those three witnesses compelling at all. Well, the opposite is what John wants you to see in 1 John Chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. There are three witnesses put forth by the Apostle John testifying to who Jesus is. And I believe these witnesses are extremely compelling. Very compelling. You see, in today's text, the Apostle John shifts from what he's been doing a little bit. He's still giving us assurance. Now remember, we've entitled the sermon series through 1 John, How Can We Know? Because the, the focus of, the, of this little epistle is Assurance. John, the Apostle John, wants the believers to have assurance. Now, up until this point in the letter, he's been asking, how can we know? How can we know that that we have eternal life? How can we know that our faith is real? How can we know that we are in a genuine relationship with God? And John wants us to have assurance. This book is written to help us make sure we know Christ. Matter of fact, it makes no more sense for a Christian to walk walk around not knowing if he or she is a Christian, then it would for me to, to come up to one of you and ask you if you're married, and you wouldn't know the answer to it. I, I don't know, maybe. Or if I ask you if you have kids, I, I, think, I think I do, but I'm just not sure. That's not Paul, I mean, John, I've done it again, John wants us to have absolute assurance about our faith, and so that's why he's given us this book. He wants us to know about our relationship with God. So he's given us a series of tests. And I've shown you in the past couple of weeks, these tests fall into three basic categories. One, moral or ethical test. Do we obey God's commandments? Number two, social or relational test. Do you love God's children? And number three, a doctrinal test. Do you believe the apostolic word about Jesus? And so in connection with that last type of test, the doctrinal test, we now see John shifting a little bit in his attempt to give us assurance. He shifts from the genuineness of our faith to the genuineness of the object of our faith. From the genuineness of our faith to the genuineness of the object of our faith. Previously, John was asking if our belief was real. Do we actually believe the apostolic word? But now he's helping us determine if the object of our faith, namely Jesus, if, if he's real. Is he who the apostles, including John, say he is? And to help us de- determine the genuineness of the object of our faith, John calls for three witnesses to testify about Jesus. So let's hear the three witnesses and consider how we are to respond. So please stand, if you would, as we read 1 John 5, verses 6 through 13. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 13. We stand in the honor of reading God's Word. The Word of the Lord says in verse 6, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has The testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to feel the weight of this passage of Scripture today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would would work in our hearts and in our minds today, opening up our ears to hear the Scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you give me a mouth to speak. Lord, help us to have absolute rock-solid confidence in the witnesses you've put forth regarding your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, today's passage um, needs to be understood in the light of two phrases that came earlier in this chapter, two things we looked at last week. There are two things in in that section, uh, 1 John 5 1 through 5, that John tells us uh, that true Christians must believe about Jesus, okay? Uh, First of all, if you look at, you turn your eyes back to verse 1 of chapter 5, you'll see the phrase, Everyone who believes, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So true Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one. And then look at verse 5. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes, what? That Jesus is the Son of God. So now we see that true Christians believe not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but also that he is the Son of God. And so John is saying that the Christian, the one born of God, the one who overcomes the world, is a person who makes a specific Doctrinal confession about who Jesus is. He puts all of his hope in the Jesus, not of his own making, not of his own imagination, not of the world's opinions. But he puts all of his hope, all of his faith in the Jesus of the apostles teaching, meaning the Jesus of the Bible. For John and really for all of scripture, doctrine and faith go hand in hand and cannot be separated. So this sets the stage for verses 6 through 13. Up until now, we've relied on the apostolic witness. We've accepted the witness of men, the apostles. But now, we we how do we know? The question is, how do we know that the Jesus that the apostles are testifying to is the true Jesus? Well, John is about to give us three more witnesses in today's text. So, as we get started, we need to understand a couple of things. I need to do a little bit of lay a little groundwork here as we get into today's text. In verses six through eight, there, there's this strange reference. And we need to explain what it is. This reference to water and blood. What are those words meant to convey? And, and what they mean to convey has actually been a source of disagreement among different theologians throughout church history. So let me, let me lay out three main interpretations. And I'll tell you why I believe the last one is the right one. And actually, it's important to land on the last one. First of all, there's the interpretation that Luther and Calvin had, which is that the water and the blood represent the sacraments. Okay, Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. So baptism is the water, Christian baptism, and the Lord's Supper is the blood. Now, we can certainly see how Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper might testify to the person of Jesus Christ. But John seems to be speaking of something that is directly in Jesus' own experience and time and history, which points to the genuineness of his person and his work. So I don't think that's an acceptable interpretation. Another interpretation, that of Augustine, and if you're going to go against Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, you've got to have some pretty—you've got to preach this with shaky knees, all right? Uh, the interpretation of Augustine was that he suggested the water and blood refers to John 1934. Now, if you remember in that passage, as Jesus has died, the, the soldier pierces Jesus' side. And what flows out of, out of the wound in his side? Blood and water, right? And so it's suggested by Augustine that John is pointing back to the mingled water and blood— coming out of Jesus' side as a testimony to the humanity of Christ at his death. And though this is plausible, I think the third option is better. And the third option is the one put forth by Tertullian, the second century theologian, and most theologians since then, this is the majority view, which sees that the water and the blood is a reference to Jesus' baptism and to Jesus' death. His baptism and his death. Water is his baptism, the blood is the shedding of his blood is his death. Now, And I don't only think this is the right interpretation, I think that we'll see that it's vital to understanding what we read, especially what we read at the very end of this passage today in verse 12, which is an amazing verse. Whoever has the Son has life. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, it would seem that the historical context of this letter as well requires that we read water and blood as referring to his baptism and his resurrection. I mean, and his death and resurrection, I should say. We need to remember what the teachings that John has been refuting have been in this epistle. He's been refuting the Gnostic worldview and the specific form of that worldview... ...that was, that was infecting the churches of Asia Minor was a heresy called docetism. Now if you recall, and we talked about this earlier, docetism was a, was a, was a, a teaching led by a man, man named Serenthus... ...and they had been teaching people that Christ, the Messiah, only came upon Jesus at his baptism, and then departed from Jesus, the man Jesus, before his crucifixion. The reason is because they were, they were Gnostics. They, they believed that flesh, anything material, was evil. And therefore, the Christ, uh, the second person of the Godhead, if they even believed the Trinity, couldn't have possibly actually taken on flesh. And so the Christ just sort of came upon the man Jesus at the baptism, and then left the man Jesus at the, before the crucifixion. And this was a teaching that was circulating in the churches at the time. And notice what John says here in verse 6. This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only. I think that's a key, that's a clue telling us what he's dealing with here. Not by the water only, meaning not by his baptism only. This, this clues us in that John is indeed refuting the docetists. Because the docetists believed that Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, as I just said. So John says that he came by the water and the blood. The docetists deny that Jesus physically died, or that that Christ physically died. They believe that Jesus died, but not Christ. That he departed from Jesus before the crucifixion. So it seems clear here that John is fighting this heresy with what he's saying, but he's also refuting the the docetist's faulty view of Jesus' baptism. Notice verse 6. John calls Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He is saying that Jesus was already the Messiah when he carried out the act of coming. Meaning he was already the Christ when he came. It's not that he became the Christ at his baptism. Okay? He was, his coming at his baptism means his revealing, not his becoming. John in verse 6 is saying that Jesus did not become the Son of God at his baptism. But through baptism, through the water, he is revealed for who he is. And he was declared to be who he already was. So, with that said, let us focus now on what these witnesses have to say. And as we see, there are three witnesses that God has put forth concerning his son. Three witnesses that God has put forth concerning his son, concerning Jesus. So let me read verses six through eight. This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, in the blood, and these three agree. The first witness called to the witness stand, if you will, is the water. And we've already seen that the water represents the baptism. So, the three witness concerning, witnesses that God has put forth concerning Jesus is first of all, the baptism undertaken by Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. The baptism undertaken by Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. As we already said, Jesus at his baptism was revealed, he was declared to be the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, his, messianic, his earthly messianic ministry was inaugurated and commissioned. But what is it about Jesus' messianic ministry, his messianic mission? What is it about that mission that's revealed at the baptism? We know that Jesus had no need to be baptized, for baptism represented the confession of sin, repentance of sin, and the need for the, for, for the remission of sin. John the baptizer, he knew that Jesus did not need baptism. He says that in Matthew chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus had no need to to repent of any sin and to be cleansed of any sin. We read earlier in this very epistle in chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 John, In him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 states that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So why was he baptized at his inauguration, at the revelation of his messianic ministry? Why was he baptized? Well, quite simply, he was baptized for us. The first thing I want us to see, he was baptized to identify with us. To identify with us. Hebrews 7.26 says that he is a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners... ...and exalted above the heavens, yet he willingly, he willingly identified himself with us... ...and submitted himself to all the temptations that we face. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses... ...but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then earlier in Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect... ...so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest... In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted, So he identifies himself with us. He humbled himself by taking on a baptism of repentance that he did not need to identify himself with sinners who are in desperate need. He's, under, he's going under the water and, he's, and as he goes under the water, it's symbolizing his identity with the judgment that we deserve. He humbled himself unto death, the scriptures say. Philippians 2, verse 7. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man he, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross. What a humiliating experience. By submitting himself, Jesus, by submitting himself to the waters, he declared that he would take the wrath that we deserve. He would incur the floodwaters of the curse. He would incur our humiliation, our death. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is the one. This is the one being declared. This is the testimony. This is the one who came by the water in order to identify with us. But he also came to fulfill all righteousness, which I have there in the point. To fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew 3, after John the Baptist said what he said, trying to prevent Jesus from getting baptized, in verse 15, we read Jesus' answer. He says, let it be so. or Let it be so now. For, this, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. Now, when we think about Jesus himself, Matthew five seventeen says that he came to fulfill, to bring to completion all of the law. For whom? For himself? No, Jesus is fully righteous and holy and perfect. He is pure, God of God, without sin, without capacity to sin. The law is simply the reflection of who he already is, his character. So when he is fulfilling righteousness, who is he fulfilling the righteousness for? He is fulfilling it for us. Jesus came by the water in part to keep all righteousness for us. You see, he needs to fulfill all righteousness so that his righteousness, his perfect obedience, can be credited to us. He fulfills the law so that we can be seen as law keepers now because his law keeping has been credited to us. And that's part of what's happening. That's part of what's being testified to. That's being declared at the baptism. He's identifying with us. He's fulfilling all righteousness for us. So in a sense, his baptism actually is our baptism to fulfill all righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. You see, Jesus came not only to take our wrath, to take something, Always, when I'm, especially when I'm with a child and explaining the gospel, and you ask a kid, you say, why did Jesus die on the cross? They always say, some of them will say to forgive us our sins but usually they'll say something like to take our sins And usually that's the phrase to take to take our sins and I'm like you're right he did come to take the punishment for our sins so he took them in that sense but also he's giving something at the cross as well there's a taking and there's a giving there's a glorious exchange there's a taking of our unrighteousness and a giving of his righteousness to us at the cross he came to take our wrath and to give his righteousness 1 Corinthians 1 and following, it says, You are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So at his baptism, Jesus' messianic work of identification with and substitution for sinners was being witnessed to. It was being proclaimed. But we must also see that the actual event itself, the historical event of the baptism, included supernatural physical phenomena that witness to the true nature of Jesus. You know the story, Matthew three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the waters testified to who Jesus is. So the first witness to come to the stand has spoken, but now we need to consider the testimony of the blood. And the blood represents the death suffered by Jesus to forgive all trespasses. The death suffered by Jesus to forgive all trespasses. Jesus' earthly messianic ministry was inaugurated at the Jordan, and it was completed at Golgotha. The blood. Now remember, the Gnostics taught that anything physical was evil. Therefore, the Messiah couldn't have really taken on Material flesh and real blood. But, but here we see John saying the Messiah did indeed take on flesh. For he came and he was testified to by the shedding of his blood. Which means he died a real, physical, and horrific death. Now we know that Jesus himself did not have to submit to death. For death is reserved for transgressors. For those who are under the curse of sin. And as we've already shown, Jesus is without sin. So why did he die? And what is that death testifying to? Well, just as as he was baptized for us, so too he died for us to deal with our sin, to deal with our death problem. As we've already seen in 1 John 1, verse 7, it says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Acts twenty twenty eight says that we are the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. 1 Peter 1 18 and following. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Death itself is the evidence that we are under a curse it's the wages it's the it's the just uh, what we justly deserve because of our sin and our blood is required because of our rebellion and we can do nothing to overcome death therefore we needed to be set free from death by having another die in our place we needed a substitutionary death we needed substitutionary blood to be shed on our behalf for only by the shedding of blood can sin be removed as Hebrews 9.22 teaches us without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and God's law demanded the shedding of blood Leviticus 17.11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life but death death has no claim over sinless blood Therefore, the blood of Jesus testifies to who Jesus is. For his perfect, pure, sinless blood was sufficient to deal with the sins of all his people. It was an acceptable sacrifice to a holy God. And that's the testimony. That's what the blood speaks. Hebrews 7 verse, uh, um, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 verses 24 to 25 says, We are to come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, listen to this, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then he goes on in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus' blood speaks. It speaks, it testifies. But more than that, more than just his blood testifying to what was accomplished of the cross and who he is as our Savior, just as with the baptism, the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross also included supernatural physical phenomenon that tested that testified to his true nature. Matthew twenty seven, forty-five. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. It's in the middle of the day it goes pitch black. Then verse fifty one Behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Such was the spectacular nature and testimony of what we read that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, the centurion and those who were with him were filled with awe and said, what? Truly, this was the Son of God. So The water has testified. The blood has testified. Now, I think there's another thing that's being implied here, though, as John mentions the words water and blood together. I think there's an illusion here to the high priestly work of Jesus. There's in, and we read in the Old Testament, Exodus 29, 4, and then Leviticus 8, 6, Numbers 8, 7, that the priests had to be washed before they stood before God as a substitutionary representative for God's people. And we read in Numbers 4, verse 3, that the priest could only begin his work when he was 30 years old. Did you know that? That a priest could only begin his work when he was 30 years old. And we read this, In Luke's account of the baptism, this is what we read. Luke chapter 3, verse 2, and verses 21 and following. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. We also read in those Old Testament accounts that that the priest's head had to be anointed with oil. And the oil is oftentimes in Scripture a type of the Holy Spirit. And so we see at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends upon him. And in those Old Testament accounts, at the end of of all the ceremony for the priest, there was a verbal blessing given. And what do we see here in Jesus' baptism? The Father verbally proclaims his blessing upon his Son. And what is it that priests did? did. They offered up sacrifices of blood for the people. Both his baptism, the water, and his death, the blood, testified to the fact that Jesus is our high priest. Tells us something about who he is. The water and the blood are telling us what Jesus has done and who he is for us. Hebrews six nineteen we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then Hebrews 10, 19, a portion of what Demer read earlier. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Listen to this with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the water, the baptism, testifies to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So too does the blood, the death, and both of them together testify to his eternal priesthood. But we have a third witness. We have a third witness. And of course, Jewish law required for anything to be attested to by two or three witnesses. And there's a third witness. The Spirit sent by Jesus to teach all things. The Spirit sent by Jesus to teach all things. Second half of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Notice the Spirit doesn't merely testify to the truth, which He does that, but the Spirit Himself is the truth. Verse 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit... And the water and the blood and these three agree. The testimony of the Spirit is consistent with the other two witnesses. Now, if you remember my story from the beginning, I mean, really, one of the reasons we didn't side with the woman were the inconsistencies. The witnesses didn't agree. The witness she brought forth who saw the accident didn't agree with her own account of the accident. There was inconsistencies, but there's no inconsistencies in God's testimony. So how does the Spirit bear witness? Well, we've already seen how the Spirit was involved in the supernatural phenomenon about, in the baptism, the Spirit descended upon the Son, and in Romans 8, 11, we read that the Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And by the way, oftentimes when you're referring to the death of Jesus in the New Testament, it's including the resurrection, okay? So the Spirit was involved in, in both the, the, the death of Jesus, uh, in, in the sense that He raised Jesus uh, from the dead, and also at the baptism. And by the way, and I, and I skipped over this in my note, the greatest... Phenomenon that testifies to the nature of Jesus at his death was his resurrection. That's the greatest testimony. The empty tomb stands to this day shouting as a testimony from the witness stand. He is who he says he is. He is who the apostles say he is. The loudest witness. As a matter of fact, I can't believe I skipped over that in my notes. So we, we need to see that. We need to understand these, this testimony. In Acts 2, 2, we read that the Spirit's coming Upon the church itself involved supernatural phenomena. Acts 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the, and the message that the Spirit enabled them to speak is the message He enables us to speak, namely... It's the message about Jesus. It's the testimony about who Jesus is. That's the Holy Spirit's role, to teach us who Jesus is, to testify to who he is. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It is the Spirit that enables the apostolic witness, John fourteen, twenty-six. But when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, comes, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And what's more, for the believer, for the believer, the Holy Spirit lives within our own hearts and therefore gives us an internal witness. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Peter, by, while being questioned by the high priest in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, he says this, We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Romans eight sixteen: The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, testifies. Therefore, this is a divine testimony. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, I think he's referring there to the the apostles' testimony, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. All of this, the blood, the water, and the Spirit is the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. God has testified, in other words. The three witnesses really make up one witness. God has testified about his own son. Yet there are millions who, despite the witness of God, refuse to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They are in essence saying, no, you know, I think I know more about Jesus than you do, God. I think I've got figured out who the real Jesus is instead of what you have to say, God. And in doing so, they declare God to be a liar verse 10 second half whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son and this brings us to a twist to sort of conclude the message this morning this brings us to a, tw- a twist in our court proceedings right I used to watch I like watching courtroom dramas I've shared that with you guys before and you know if you ever watch Matlock which isn't a real, realistic courtroom drama but Matlock there's always a twist in the end right and a lot of times in that twist, or in, what was it, Perry Mason. Okay, have you ever seen in those shows how somehow they'll get the person they know who really committed the crime to get into the witness stand somehow? Have you ever noticed that? And then all of a sudden they'll turn it on the person who's in the witness stand and say, you did it, right? And therefore, you know, kind of take getting their person off the hook or whatever. And so the witness, the whole thing's kind of twisted, twisted around. I don't think court proceedings can actually go like that, but, but at least on TV it's fun. Well, you see, we have a twist here in this court proceeding. Though there have been three witnesses testifying about Jesus, ultimately, despite the title that I gave to this sermon, Jesus is not on trial, we are. Jesus is not the one on trial. We are the ones on trial. For there are only two responses that we can have to this threefold testimony. Two responses that mankind can have concerning Jesus belief, which means you have Jesus and thus have life, or unbelief, which means you don't have Jesus and thus remain in death. Only two responses. So the question hanging in the air at the end of today's text is what's your verdict? You're sitting in the jury, but you're also on trial. Your verdict determines your destiny. Do you believe or disbelieve the testimony of the three witnesses? Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you believe, then you have, as I mentioned earlier, the indwelling spirit who has awakened your heart. And according to 2 Corinthians 1 22, 2 Corinthians 5 5, and Ephesians 1 11, the indwelling spirit is also the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. So it makes no surprise to us. It's no surprise to us when we read in verse 11, it says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So to have the spirit is to have the testimony. And the testimony is eternal life, and eternal life is what we have in the Son. Thus, in verse 12, we read one of the most important things that anyone on this planet can ever read. One of the most important verses in all of Scripture, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the question this morning is, do you have the Son? What does it mean to have the Son? Well, it's to have, to have the Son. It's not just to believe in the Son. It is that. But it's also to possess Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. That's why the water and the blood, understanding what they are, is so important. To have Jesus is to have the righteousness of Christ counted to us. Righteousness manifested by the waters of his baptism. To have Jesus is to have forgiveness of sins secured for us, forgiveness purchased by his blood. To have Jesus is to have an eternal high priest who lives to make intercession for us. And when our faith begins to waver, isn't it good to know that we have Jesus as an advocate? 1 John 2, 1, and he is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteousness. We need a lawyer, in other words, because we're on trial. And thank goodness those who believe do. We have Jesus Christ. But this is the good news only for those who believe. If you do not believe, you do not have life. According to Jesus in John's gospel, you are condemned already. The wrath of God remains on you. So, friend, I ask you this morning stop ignoring the witness of God. Stop trying to define Jesus on your own terms. He was not merely a human moral example or a spiritual guru, or a political revolutionary, or a social crusader. No, he is the Son of God, the God-man. He is the spotless lamb who takes away our sins. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. So you have seen the evidence. You have heard the witnesses. So what's your verdict? I urge you, friends, if you're not a believer... Don't deliberate too long. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. And I ask, Lord, and I hope, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will use what's been taught today to give us assurance. There's no question about who Jesus is. You have testified to it. And if there's a question, it's because we are fools who like to call you a liar sometimes. So for the believer in here, Father, my prayer this morning is that you would cause us to have greater assurance, greater confidence in the testimony that we have already heard and that we've already believed, especially in the midst of a culture and a world that wants to undo everything that the Father has said about the Son. If there'd be unbelievers here in the room this morning, Father, I pray that you'd help them break away from the witness of the world which is a lying witness break away from the father of deceit who is the devil I pray that you would enable them through, a, through the opening of their heart through the, the rebirth of their heart to see the witness for the first time to believe the three witnesses and to accept the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is and if they do they will repent of their sins and they'll turn to Jesus Christ alone for life so God I ask that you do your work here As we sing this closing song, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.